This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Hello, this is Craig Weberg, Senior Editor for MGMA. Today I'm joined by industry expert and author Jennifer Turney, founder of Value-Based Care. <laughs> Jennifer has written the MGMA book titled Roadmaps to Value-Based Profitability, and today we will be talking about what practices need to do to prepare for the, on the road to value. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and about yourself? Thanks for having me on the podcast, Craig. Uh, I'm excited about the book, which is based on my knowledge and experience that I've gained over the last 25 years in healthcare. I held positions of CEO and CFO in managed care, and now I speak and consult about value-based care. I work with clients that want to succeed, despite all these changes that are going on in the industry. There's a real struggle for balance between providers and payers, and also between physical and behavioral health care. And what I'm doing is focusing on bridging those gaps to achieve profitable, integrated, and truly patient-centered care. So we've been, we've been Jennifer, we've been hearing about um, value-based care for many, many years now. You know, it started with pay for reporting, and it's moved into now, you know, that was years and years ago. And now we're, we're really starting to see some change we're right, starting to see uh, momentum for people entering into value-based care and value-based contracts. So my question for you, is it time, is it time for practices, practices to start paying attention and creating a plan of action to participate in these programs? Is now the time, finally? Yes, the time for action is definitely now. There's, as you mentioned, been an increase in participation and programs that link the payment to value and quality. Uh, for providers that are not participating, they're in a situation where they could get left behind, particularly as payers are being pushed to have more contracts that are in value-based arrangements. Lots of different avenues are being focused on contracts for payers, particularly around Medicaid and Medicare. Payers are required to actually demonstrate a certain dollar amount of care costs being covered by programs that are tied to value and quality. And for those that are participating, there's even a push to increase the complexity of how the payment methodology works. So there's an increasing level of expectation that we're going to move beyond things like pay for reporting or being able to just demonstrate smaller outcomes and moving ultimately towards a population-based approach towards care and moving to the value-based payments and being successful and successful being profitable definitely takes some time. I'd like to jump in and the word profitability, uh, you're, you're, that's what really struck me about the book is value-based profitability, the roadmap to value-based profitability. We've I've heard a lot about value-based care and I've heard a lot about value-based payments. That's the nomenclature that I hear kind of on either side of it. But 
it seems to be that value-based profitability is meeting in the middle somewhere. And I think that's really what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to what is that value-based profitability where the mission and the margin meet. What do you think are the keys to achieving profitability in value-based care? The keys that I see are success involves moving your practice to focusing on the three aspects of what the triple aim is, which is improving clinical outcomes, improving the patient experience, and lowering overall cost. So this really requires blending or marrying the three components successfully. Uh, as a person that started their life and still maintains their CPA license, profitability and the financial piece can't be disconnected from the delivery of care, you still have a business to run and it needs to be a successful business in order to continue. So being able to take the financial piece and marrying that with how you're being able to improve people's health and wellness while they're still having a good experience is really the focus. And so I, I like how you've characterized the idea of it's value-based care and payments, because sometimes that balance doesn't seem to be there, that it's either focusing on the payments or just on the care, and it's really the blending of the two is how you get to profitability. Uh, I think one of the key components is leadership. Leadership is absolutely critical in this process. It's developing the understanding and knowledge of what it means to deliver value-based care and what the financial components are so that you are blending those two together, managing the risk, using the data, and being able to lead people through change. I worked on a project for the state of Maryland back when the patient-centered medical home was first really coming about. They offered an incentive program for practices and my role within the project was to go out and interview the practices that did exceptionally well and earn significant fees under the incentives that they had. And despite looking at lots of quantitative data, I looked at information that was submitted to NCQA to demonstrate that they had achieved patient-centered medical home status as an accreditation. I looked at organizational structure. I looked at data. I talked to people. I interviewed people. And what it really came down to was the core leadership made the difference. There was something that you could not tangibly put your finger on. It wasn't necessarily quantifiable. But having that key leader in the practice, both on the medical side and an administrative side, is definitely a key component to succeeding with value-based profitability. There's still a certain amount of focus on clinical outcomes, and I think that the challenge there is that there's a lot of pushback over what's meaningful, and we haven't done a good job of connecting particularly process measures where we're looking at things at rate of mammograms or how many people have good control of uh, A1C levels. And so people aren't necessarily seeing the connection of how that drives to better health and wellness. And I think part of that has to do with the outcomes that are being selected aren't being tied to true meaningful outcomes, which for me goes back to tying it to the mission. So again, blending the mission part, as you mentioned earlier. 
and also really looking at the patient experience. In order to succeed, I think we need to change our perspective. I know many practices feel that they are patient-centered already, but I would say take a clean slate and rethink this from a patient perspective. And what are the differences in the individuals that you treat and care for and how they go about managing their health? We can't do this as healthcare organizations. We can't do this unless we get patients engaged. And being engaged means being able to talk to them in an appropriate manner. Some of it has to do with education and meeting the patient where they are and really starting to move away from sick care to looking at prevention. And all of that is a big shift. It's a big cultural shift for where practices have been. And compounding that, of course, is technology and infrastructure challenges. Um, but for me, I think the biggest change is, is focusing on the aspect of people because you can put any kind of report in, you can put a process, you can put a workflow in, but if people aren't engaged and people being your staff and also even patients, then it's not gonna be effective. I think that's a great point. Uh, you, you talk about people being the center of this and as you're discussing kind of the three different pillars of the triple aim, it, it really, to me, it makes it, it's very complex or it can be very complex. All these different elements, you've got the finances and the cost and the accessibility and the experience. And for an administrator or a leader who is looking at doing this transition, you know, that can be overwhelming, I would imagine, of where do I even begin? But I like how you tie it back in to the patient, you know, if this is where we start, it leaves, at least it gives us the focal point of getting people uh, of the right effort and the right uh, focus, right? So that's, that's a good place to start is what I'm hearing you say, patient-centered, patient-centric. Yeah, and there's a lot of terms that get thrown around, whether it's patient-centered, patient-centric. I'm not even sure of all the different variations, but there are several variations out there, but focusing on the patient, um, for me, part of the reason why I restructured my company as values with an S on the end, based care, is because a lot of this needs to be driven by your organizational values. In healthcare, we're here to serve people. We're here to promote health and wellness. We're not here just to solve a problem after somebody gets sick. And so being patient-centered means that many of your decisions should be focused on what's in best interest of the patient. Your mission as a healthcare organization is usually geared towards the patient and should be patient-centered. So as a business, you need to be profitable in order to serve the patient. And by serving the patient, that means knowing what they need and also what works best for them. So being able to blend it, and again, I truly do think that the tripling represents well both overarching goals, but also where you need to be as a 
provider organization that focus in how you demonstrate that. So starting at looking at where the patient is, where your values are, and understanding how you're demonstrating your values in your interactions with your patients, your staff, and how that leads to being successful in a value-based contract. So the book, Roadmaps to Value-Based Profitability, that you're publishing with MGMA, a roadmap, I think, of you know, giving you the guidance, giving you the steps of how to get from point A to point B. In that text and in that book, what are some of the first things that a leader should be doing when assessing? Is an assessment? Is that what the first step is? Um, how would you begin the journey on the roadmap, if you will? Yeah, so roadmap, just like any kind of map, if you were in your car and you're driving from where you are today to another location, you need to know where you're starting. And so the assessment is the starting point for how you move down the road to value-based profitability. Understanding the strengths of your organization, maybe where there are some weaknesses, and also putting that in context of what's going on external to your organization, what are regulatory changes or changes with payers and how you assess those and where you position yourself. It lines up really well with business strategy and being able to define where it is that you're going and how you capitalize on what you already have because it is complex. And I think one of the biggest things hopefully the book starts you down the path is simplifying it. You can start with an assessment and get an understanding of where you are. And if you don't have the resources to try to change everything at once, or that's just too overwhelming, you start with looking at where are the key points that you have strengths and start with building out on those strengths and then moving towards making changes in areas that you need to improve so that, again, cutting down on the overwhelm and trying to keep it simple is one of the goals and really important as you're moving down that roadmap. So a little earlier in our conversation, you talked about how important the leadership is and what has set apart successful organizations from unsuccessful organizations has been those dynamic leaders, the people that get it and are able to communicate it and lead a change management process. Um, what, can you go in a little bit further into that and, and kind of how, how do you begin to communicate with leaders and how do you, how do you get them on board? What does that look like? How do, is it the physicians and administrators together? Can you talk a little bit more about showing and demonstrating and working with those leaders in order to get it and to be able to communicate it out to their organizations? Physician leadership is important to the process for getting on board the clinical side of the house and being able to have the conversation. One of the things that I've found, particularly when you're looking at specific changes, is that you really need to have a certain level of awareness of how people approach problems and change differently. So how a physician wants to hear information and have that communicated and what's compelling to them to make a change 
is very different than if you're talking to the medical assistant or you are talking to the front desk receptionist or people even in, in larger organizations if you're talking about people that are in quality improvement or maybe it's just even the call center that's doing scheduling. How you communicate needs to be tailored to the audience. And so the leadership from a physician perspective is important because the physician is the one that will get the medical side on house. The administrative leadership is important also because what a physician's really great at is not necessarily managing a project and making the concrete pieces of change happen because there's the people part, but there's also the aspect of what needs to change from process and infrastructure within moving to value-based profitability and blending those two together. So there's a lot of blending going on in this environment. Having the administrative leadership and champion as well as a physician champion really blends the two together and gets both sides of the house on board and moving forward. And people react differently depending on who it is and who's doing the speaking. So a lot of that has to do with communication, respect, uh, authority, and making sure that you've identified people that are in a position that have influence. So it's not even just direct hierarchical influence. It can be, but it also has to do with the ability of that particular person to engage and influence people on a more informal basis. Right. Living the, the culture, demonstrating the culture. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think yeah, it's a role model. The, the, it's the role model that you want to demonstrate. You want that person to buy in, understand, yeah. be able to explain it and yes, definitely live it. Yeah. There's some classic elements of change management of from the, sponsor to the, you know, to the example, um, that, that those are great points. I, I've always found it interesting, um, kind of that relationship between the clinical, the physician side and the, the administrator side. You know, I've been at MGMA for almost 20 years now, and this has always been the, the important relationship. And I think in fee-for-service world, it was a lot easier. The business side is the admin and the clinical side is the is the physician and with the value-based care, I've seen those lines get a little bit blurred and, and the necessity of those two groups working closer together to come up with solutions. Yeah, the line is definitely being blurred, particularly with a push towards team-based care. Uh, I actually really like the change. I'm a big believer in everybody should understand how they contribute to the whole and that's an important aspect of moving to value-based types of contracts because everybody contributes. Everybody has certain touch points, whether it's directly with a patient or maybe it's just in supporting one another within the team. And the role of the physician is changing. Uh, and I'm hoping that more practices will be comfortable with that change. I interviewed um, a medical assistant prior to, or as part of my research in writing the book. And I remember feeling kind of bad because the person said to me, well, you know, I'm just a peon. 
what do I have to contribute? The doctor is so smart. He's so much more educated. He knows so much more than I am. You know, there's, I'm just this person. And I, I remember being struck because it was a sad perspective for me in my environment and my personal viewpoint and belief and what I succeeded, I think very well at and being a leader is making sure that people understand the big picture and that no one ever feels like they're a peon and they don't count. So developing that type of mentality and culture is really going to be even more important as we move towards engaging patients and addressing the issues with staff retention and even recruiting staff. It becomes super important. So I hope that there's a lot more blending and that people focus on the bigger picture because that is, again, it feels like there's many moving parts, but having everyone contribute to the whole, kind of like we keep talking about holistic care, it's holistic business practices of making sure that everybody is a part of the team and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the one that's directly interacting with the patient, but understanding how you contribute to the success of an organization, how you contribute to the success and achievement of goals for a particular patient. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Those are some great comments. In order to be patient, what I'm hearing you say is that in, in order to be patient centric or patient centered, you also need to be team-centered and team-centric. They go hand in hand. So that's an important piece. You can't change the culture. You can't become patient-centered without changing your, the focus of your team. I, I, I'm just saying that out loud. So that's, I think that's great. Yeah, and even incorporating the idea of a team. And the team isn't just the, the medical team. It's not just the people that are in the room with the patient, it's everybody in the office from the moment you walk in, that first phone call even, when you call to schedule for a patient, that sets the expectations for what the patient, uh, the patient experience begins. You know, how you answer the phone and the success you have and how quickly you can get access and being able to schedule an appointment, seeing the physician that you want to see, or maybe it's seeing the nurse practitioner having your, your needs and preferences being met as a patient is going to be important. And communicating and making sure that everyone understands that they are a part of success of the patient is important. Uh, even for back office functions, you know, you often get, well, I'm in billing. I submit claims to the payer. I don't have any interaction with the provider. I mean, I only have interaction with the provider. I don't have any interaction with the patient but you are contributing to the patient's overall experience because you're making sure that they don't get a bill from your practice because something didn't happen with the insurance. You're making sure that that person is able to get full value from their benefits that they're paying for, or maybe they're receiving as part of a government program. You have a role within that. It doesn't matter where you are within the organization, you have a role within the team of how you interact with patients, whether it's indirect or direct. Well, that's an excellent point. You know, part of your experience as a patient is that bill that you receive. And if you're convinced that, or if you're getting inaccurate information, that absolutely, you know, 
is part of the experience factor for a patient. That's a great point. Okay, so Jennifer, we've talked about assessments, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about team-based care, we've talked about engagement. You know, the final piece, maybe not the final piece, but another major piece of this is the reimbursement and contracts. Um, there's the government payers, there's the commercial payers, there's, you know, the spectrum of, you know, MIPS all the way through to advanced payment models to capitation. How do practices make sense of all of this and, and where should they begin? What are some resources that they can, you know, help them focus on where they should be participating? And, 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 and on, the, on top of that, how can they figure out where that profitability lies? You know, how can they, what are resources they can use to assess where they should be and how they should participate in value-based care? Yeah, so there are a lot of programs out there currently in place, and a lot of it's being driven by the contracts that the payers have, if it is in the, the government space or something that may be coming from an employer. Uh, and I think the payers have found that success and doing well profitably for them has also led it to being adopted into the commercial space, which may be just private market payers, private market insurance uh, also being subject to value-based care. And I think the real struggle for providers right now is when you have multiple payers and they're all asking for something different. And that is a real challenge because if you're being asked to report different measures, then you have to put something in place that measures those specific measures for that particular payer. And it may not be enough of your total patient panel or population to be meaningful to your practice. So I think there's a couple of things to start in evaluating it. One has to do with the number of patients that you see under that particular payer. So what's the concentration of your population within that pair? Is it large enough that it makes a difference for you in order to put things in place? Because it becomes very complex if you're trying to just do this set of measures for pair one and pair two asks for something totally different. And while there are some differences, I don't know that there are as many as it might seem. Many of the payers are uh, measured based on HEDIS measures, and that's HEDIS that's produced by NCQA. It's for things like follow-up after hospitalization is probably the biggest and most widely known HEDIS measure. And also looking at readmissions to hospitals, there is some overlap in the MIPS outcomes that are being done. I always recommend for providers that there's two things to look at. One is, do you start internally based on what makes sense for you as a practice, based on the needs of your population? Go through and as part of your assessment uh, that I'd mentioned, you're not only assessing your cultural readiness and the actual physical infrastructure, technology components of who's in your practice, how things are structured. There's that part of an assessment. And then there's also an assessment 
relate it to who it is that you actually see as patient. So understanding your population. If you start internally with developing outcomes that make sense for your group that you serve, it's a lot easier because then you can do a broad brush and say, you know, we see a lot of individuals with asthma and so we're going to measure these specific outcomes that are related to asthma. And it's going to vary depending on the type of practice that you have. If you're primary care versus a specialty care practice, obviously the measures are going to change. So there's that perspective of looking at that. And I like to combine that with looking at payer initiatives. So sometimes the payer initiatives are out there for public information. A couple of ways that a provider can go through and identify measures or specific care that might be of interest to a payer is first look at the payer's website. Lots of times they have their bragging rights about programs that they have and they're usually related to the top highest diagnoses. So you've got things about diabetes, you've got programs related to hypertension. They're out there on their website. But if it's not there, that doesn't mean that isn't still an opportunity. The other place that I like to go is to NCQA's website. There are report cards on every health plan. 90% of all payers report into NCQA their HEDIS measures. It's available publicly to anyone. And you can go out and see where a health plan is doing well to not so well. And it's a simple report and it identifies what the measures are. So if you look at where a health plan is not performing well and you look at your practice in comparison, if that's an area that they're not doing well and maybe your current measures aren't as strong as they could be, that's an area where you can go approach a payer and say, hey, We'd like to focus on this and we want to engage in a conversation on doing value-based payments related to this particular condition. That's a really great way and that's much more proactive if a practice is looking to approach a payer. But lots of times the payers are approaching providers, particularly larger providers, because again, the push on needing to have a certain amount of dollar amounts under value-based contracts is driving payers to approach providers or making it mandatory for participation in the network that they have to accept to be part of an incentive program. And once that, you lose a little bit more control because now you're structured around what the payer wants, which if they're asking you to participate in it and they're coming after you directly and it's not just a broad brush program, that means that your population is part of the group of people that need to show improvement. So they've already analyzed your information. One of the things that managed care has is a wealth of data and generally most health plans know how to use it and dive into it. So if they're approaching you, they already know that there's areas for improvement and that's why they're, they're asking you to participate. So to me, there's two different perspectives, whether you're starting it proactively and approaching a payer and that could be multiple payers, or if you are being asked to respond back to a payer. And there's, there's pros and cons to both sides. Sometimes it's a little easier to start with what the provider is, what the payer is asking for, because you know it's already of interest to them. And it gives you a smaller subset to, to work with. But either way, you can work it. You just have to work through the dynamics as you're 
looking at how you you move forward with implementing that in your practice. Well, that's a good point. You can either be proactive and kind of find out what your population needs as far as improvement or where your opportunities for improvement are, or conversely, the payers are probably going to tell you at some point of where your opportunities for improvement are. So great, great points there. Yeah. Yeah. The payers, they, they do have a lot of data. If you are getting reports about care gaps, which I think the biggest challenge with what pairs are, are producing is that it's not integrated into your EHR and it's not really that helpful or useful if you have to go out to a portal to get information about a report. It, it just, it's, it's, we're still working through that cumbersome part of the process of making the information easy to use, accessible, and being able to help improve people's health. We haven't quite worked all the kinks out there. I think that that's a, a great place to kind of try to wrap this up a little bit, but I do hear you that it is a work in progress. There's opportunities for improvement with data sharing and, you know, just across the board. I know that this is kind of a work in progress, but um, what I'm hearing from you is that it's worthwhile and it's worth the effort to change the attitude and change the behavior and for the for the benefit of the the patient yeah one of the things that i <laughs> i i sometimes make the analogy and it may not apply everywhere is when you used to go grocery shopping and you could get any kind of bag you wanted depending on where you live uh, where I live now, you actually have to pay to use plastic and paper. You're required to bring your own bags. But when the grocery stores started first trying to get people to purchase reusable grocery bags, they offered an incentive. So you purchased the bag and you got a reduction off of your grocery bill for 10 cents every time you use the bag. So if it costs you a dollar to buy the bag, if you used it 10 times, you were at break even. And eventually, at least where I live now, it's moved away from an incentive model to a penalty model. And it's very similar to what we're going through in healthcare. Right now, there's a ton of incentives out there for providers to get involved and participate in these programs. I don't think that's gonna stay that way indefinitely because at some point there will be enough providers on board that unless you are in a unique situation or in an area where you have absolutely no competition and no ability to be bumped, but with telemedicine, that I think becomes a, a little bit more of a risk, that we're gonna see it shift, that no longer it's gonna be incentives, it's gonna be the minimum to play. And then once it gets to be the minimum to play, then you're gonna see penalties. And you can see that with how they handled the MIPS program. So you started out with an incentive pool and at some point flipped to penalties for providers if they're not meeting the quality measures. So I fully see that's where the industry is going. So before we uh, close down today's podcast, I was gonna ask you if you have any final, final words of advice for people who are starting their journey to value-based profitability. My words of wisdom would be, one, take the leap. And two, I would say start small. That way it's, 
not as scary and maybe not as risky as it might seem. Uh, it gives you a chance to start out with seeing how it works for your organization and what works well and where you might need to tweak some things. So start with one pair. Maybe start with a pair that's not a significant pair. When you're looking at what the contracts and options are, most of the, the payers are offering incentives that are upside only. So the risk that you run from a financial profitability piece is that you're going to spend some resources to maybe change work processes or roles and responsibilities or maybe putting in technology. And that's going to be your upfront cost related to that. That's much less than when you get into a situation where you actually have risk associated with the clinical outcomes and the patient experience and total cost. So start on a smaller side and take the leap because you don't want to get left behind. Okay. Thank you for that great advice today, Jennifer. And thank you for sharing all of your insights. And I just wanted to make you aware, um, listeners that you can download a chapter of Jennifer's new book roadmaps to value-based profitability at mgma.com slash roadmaps. You can read more about it there and you can actually get a chapter of her new book. So thank you again so much, Jennifer, for joining me today and have a great day. Thank you. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI, but what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.